good morning. Uh, for the sake that we're recording this morning, if you're wondering, you're listening to this, you wonder why there was no sermon Sunday, well, the, the board smoked and burned out, so this is why we're doing this. I want to thank you so much for last night. Um, it was encouraging to me, it was very encouraging to me. Um, uncomfortable for me, but thank you. Um, for your love and your support for me and my family, it really, really, really meant a lot. I read all those those cards you wrote, um, very encouraged. But I'm going to say one really stuck out to me. All it said on it was Genesis 3.15. That person gets it! They got it! Not that the rest of you didn't, but I, you know, it was just so very encouraging to me. Well, we're going to continue in Ephesians we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. The title for today is Living as God's Treasured Possession. This is going to be a multi-part series. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. Multiple parts of this, but the same title week after week will be Living as God's Treasured Possession. This is obviously part 1. Um, we're going to see today the manner, the method, and the motive. The manner, the method, and the motive. So I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses. The first six verses. I was going to read all the way through 6-9, but I, uh -oh. I don't have a technical, technical, there we go. So I ask you to stand with me. We pray. We'll read from God's Word. Trust that as we just sang in a prayer, that the Lord would speak to us. We ask God that you would speak to us. Show us our Savior. Show us our Savior. Show us our sins so that we can clearly see our Savior. Make yourself known to us. Make the book alive to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes this. God says this to us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, the word of the Lord, you may be seated. Paul, as you know, has spent three chapters explaining to them the great plan of God. He prayed for them twice as we looked at his prayer in chapter 3. He prayed that they would be strengthened with God's Spirit, that they would know the love of God. He has given them all the theological. Now he goes into what would be the practical. This is what we do now. This is what God has done this is our response. As we said, we'll see the manner, the method, and the motive. Today, we're going to deal just with the manner. John Stott writes this in his commentary about the transition here in Ephesians. He says, now the apostle moves on from the new society. Remember, God is creating one new society, the redeemed people. As the new standards, which are expected... Uh, now the apostle moves on from the new society to the new standards which are expected of it. So he turns from exposition to exhortation. 
from what God has done, which is the indicative, to what we must do, which is the imperative. From doctrine to duty. From credenda to agenda. From mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth concrete implications in everyday living. You know, the Bible is a very practical book. It's extremely practical. It's wisdom and knowledge for today. Paul reminds them first that he is a prisoner of the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 1. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He had already told them once that he is a prisoner of the Lord. He's not asking for sympathy. He's not crying about this. He reminded them that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus on their behalf. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul knew that he was really a prisoner of Rome. He was under the jurisdiction of Rome. He was Rome's prisoner. But Paul also knew that God was sovereign over his life. That God gets to decide what happens to Paul. And God in his sovereignty has let Paul be in prison for the purpose of the gospel. Paul understood God's calling on his life. And he was ready to go anywhere God said him to go. And to endure whatever may happen for the sake of the gospel. We see this in Paul's exchange with the elders at Ephesus. When he left the Ephesian elders, it's, we record, we see this recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. He says this, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. You want to know what God's call on my life is? Prisons and afflictions. Imprisonments and afflictions, that's what awaits me. But this is the response to that, to God's call on his life. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We need to be clear here. Paul is not saying he enjoys beatings and imprisonments. That would be foolish. He knows that he is, when he is at what seems to be a disadvantage, he actually has the advantage. When he seems to be at a disadvantage, he actually has the advantage. Do you know that in Christ Jesus, when you seem to be at a disadvantage, you actually have the advantage? Paul writes this about his afflictions. He says in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's in our weakness that Christ's power is displayed. What are you facing right now that seems unbearable or unable to change? The same principle applies to you, to all of God's children, to all of God's treasured possessions. In our weakness, God's Mighty strength is displayed. God displays His mighty power by empowering us to behave in a way that honors God in the midst of our circumstances. 
It's not that we just sit back and we do nothing. And pray that God comes through. Just like Paul, we need to be moving forward in obedience. That's why Paul says that he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Look what it says again in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. When we hear the word urge, we tend to think of somebody pleading or almost begging a person to do this or that. That's not what Paul is doing here. The word urge is parakaleo. It means to encourage. Actually, the actual word means to alongside call. Right? It's from the word para. We know that. Alongside. Some of you are paras in a classroom. You're alongside the teacher. Kaleo is the word call. And as I was thinking about this, I, 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 I thought about um, the time that my son spent in track and field. I don't know about every other track uh, town and, and their sports, but I know uh, from what I've observed that in, in Hasbrook Heights, who was a fantastic track team, that the coach would have the participants, I guess that's the team, they would be stationed around the field. And as people were running, they would all call out, Come on, keep going. You can do it. And sometimes Coach in his little go-kart would follow them along with his megaphone, telling them, Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You know, that's what God does with us. So we go along. He, alongside, calls us, Come on, come on, come on. Encourages them to, to, to continue on. And Paul does that from a distance. He does it from a Roman prison. He's coming along, calling alongside. Be faithful. I urge you, don't stop. Keep going. Come on. Yeah, you're cramping up. I know. Keep going. No, don't worry. Greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. Come on. Keep going. Don't stop now. Don't back down now. That's what it means to urge somebody biblically. He says, therefore I, Paul, therefore I, a prisoner uh, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The word walk, we should know by now, is parapeteo. It means behave or to conduct one's life. How you live your life. Because I urge you to walk, behave, conduct your life in a manner worthy. Worthy of the Lord. Paul is telling that by extension. He's also telling us. This is how you are to behave. That they were to remember who Christ Jesus is. Remember who they were at one time. You and I need to remember who we were at one time. What were we at one time? We were Christless. Stateless. Friendless. Godless and hopeless. Isn't that what Paul had already told the Ephesians? Go back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Rem Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that yet you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of the promise. Promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You and I were under that. 
You and I were Christless, stateless, friendless, godless, and hopeless. But it was because of the great mercy of God and the love of God that you and I were chosen in God to be God's treasured possessions. Think about that. You were chosen to be God's treasured possession. Think about it. What does God need? We know that God needs nothing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He needs nothing. He's self-sufficient. And yet, He views His children as His treasured possession. Do you have that something, that treasured something in your life? Perhaps you have a, a baseball signed by Babe Ruth. That's my treasure. I love it. Look at that thing, right? You protect it. You keep. God does the same for you. He keeps you. He holds you. He looks. Jesus, I love you. You know, I look at my dogs. I love the dogs. You know, I talk to them like they're babies and all. I treasure my dog. I treasure my. Dog. We do those things. God does that with us. He looks at us and says, "I love you. You're my treasured possession, and you can be sure of this: the enemy will never touch you." in the ultimate sense. I've covered you with my blood. Isn't that what God has done for us? It is only by the atoning sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ that we can even be near God, that we can even be, have proximity to God as His treasured possession. Look what it says in verse 13 of chapter 2. But now, once we were Christless, stateless, uh, friendless, uh, godless and hopeless, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because God has set His love upon those, upon us, He does not let us stay the way we are. Right? Because God loves you, He doesn't want you to stay the way that you are. We even sing this, we say, come as you are. Well, it's not 100% theologically true. But if you come as you are, you cannot possibly stay as you are. Just impossible. You cannot encounter a holy and a righteous and a just God and say, well, I'm just going to stay the same. God will not allow it. Actually, it will prove that you've never encountered God at all. That is why God tells us that if we're in Christ Jesus, we are a new creation. You're new in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the newness has come. In our newness of life, we are united with God through Jesus Christ. And God's desire for us not only to be united to God, as Jesus prayed, may they be one as we are one. That's what we're to do. United to one another. Again, Paul has spent three chapters telling them how God has called them to unity and to peace with each other. That's the calling that you and I have for God. Our, our calling, of course, is multifaceted, but one of the parts of our calling is that we would be at peace with one another. Look what it says in Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to, indeed, to which indeed you are called in one body. What does God want for my life? God wants me to live at peace with the people of God. This is why Paul urges them to live in a manner worthy of their calling. It is a manner of living that is opposite man's nature. 
My natural state is not to live at peace with people. And if I choose to live at peace with people, I'm only going to do it for my own selfish sake. What I can get out of it. Not because I care about your peace. I'll only care about you if I get something out of it. That's man's natural state. I'll be good and I'll be kind because I will benefit from it. The treasured possession of God strives to live opposite of their nature. They seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk in the newness of life that Christ gives. And Paul lists out here, through the power of the Holy Spirit, five characteristics that should mark the life of a child of God. What it says again in verses 1 to 3. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here they are, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Remember last night, many of you said, I think, actually, Gabe said, you know, it's like, oof! Well, here's one of those oofs. Right? We're going to get some oofs here. Um, it may sting a little bit. But it's God's love to us is what it is. You know, the Proverbs tell us this. That wounds from a friend can be trusted. Jesus says he's your friend. If you're God's treasured possession. Humility. Tape sufrenos. Sufrene, I should say. What's it mean? It means the correct estimate of ourselves. The correct estimate of ourselves. How many did you think that was going to be the definition of humility? The correct estimate of ourselves. How often do we not correctly estimate ourselves? We either overestimate ourselves or we underestimate ourselves. And both are the products of pride. Both are the products of pride. We read in the book of Romans this, in Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think about yourself with sober judgment. Don't overestimate yourself, but don't underestimate yourself either. This is a battle for some of us, isn't it? This is a struggle. You know, Jesus was the only human who ever lived who correctly estimated himself. The only human who correctly estimated himself. That's why people were amazed at his teaching, and it's also the very reason why people hated him. Jesus said this about himself. In Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am humble. And you will find rest for your souls. Ian Hamilton writes this in his commentary. The humble are those who do not seek their own good, but selfishly seek, but selflessly seek the good of others. The humble are not self-promoting or self-advertising. The humble may be bold, 
may be bold, courageous, and strong-minded, but they are always looking beyond themselves, esteeming other believers as better than themselves, and never insisting on their own way. You can be sure of this, that when humility is absent, that means pride is there. You can be sure of this, that God will oppose you. God says he opposes the proud. Opposes the proud. But have you ever thought about that, God? Do you really? Because I see a lot of proud people in government. I see a lot of arrogant people. A lot of rich, arrogant people. And they seem to be thriving. God, do you really oppose them? Well, we may not see it in this lifetime, but I can promise you at the judgment seat, they will be opposed by God. We don't want to be on the wrong side of that. God says to be humble. Have a correct estimate about yourself. And when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, if God is the standard, I would encourage you to come tonight. In Leviticus chapter 19, God says, I am holy, therefore you be holy. Now we have a basis in which to correctly estimate ourselves. Am I holy? No. What do I do about it? Nothing. Christ will do everything about it. If I encourage you to come tonight, we've got to ask ourselves, are we humble? Jesus said, follow me. I am humble. The second is that of gentleness. Gentleness. Perutes. Gentleness of attitude and behavior. In contrast with harshness in one's dealing with others. This is the one that really, this really hurts. How many times are we gentle in our response? I can tell you, my wife will probably tell you, I'm not very gentle at times. We get so easily aggravated and annoyed. And it comes out. When we presume the worst about others, say, well, they must mean this, and I go with that, and my response is that. Jesus was the epitome of gentleness. The epitome of gentleness. Look again at what Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. Gentleness, by the way, is not weakness. It doesn't mean just taking things and just being a doormat and run over. Jesus emptied the temple, and yet he was gentle. I'm not saying we should go flipping over tables and stuff, because that's what Jesus did, because Jesus did it with the right attitude and for the right reasons. We would not do it with the right attitude, and we would do it for the wrong reasons. But we need to strive to be like Jesus. The Bible tells us that we encounter those who oppose the gospel, those who oppose us, that our response is to be gentle, that we are to correct our opponents with gentleness. That's 2 Timothy 2.25. The third quality is that of patience. Macrothemia. Long-suffering. 
A state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaint or irritation. Oh, man. Are you kidding me? Sephora's Zohadis writes this in his commentary, a renowned commentary on Greek, says, it says, the quality of a person who is able to avenge himself yet refrains from doing so. You know anybody who is able to avenge themselves yet refrain from doing so? Jesus. I often think about Jesus' exchange before Pilate. You hear me talk about it a lot. Where he's, don't you realize I have the power of life and death over you? All Jesus could have just thought his death and it would have been over for him. When Jesus is in the garden, Peter whips out the sword. Not by might, nor by power, right? Jesus, but by my spirit. He's going to come. I'm going to, I'm going to win this battle here. And Jesus says, stop it. Don't you realize that I can? But how would the word of God be accomplished? Jesus was a man under complete control. Jesus was somebody who was long-suffering in the state of provocation without complaint or irritation. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he what? Opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. How often somebody says something to us. Somebody would bring even a correction to us in a kind way. And what do we do? Yeah, but you. No. Don't go to the yeah, but you. Just shut your mouth and say, I'll pray about that. I'll think about that, whether it's true or not. Or if it's true, you're right, forgive me. God is patient with you and I. God's patience is the very essence of his nature. As we heard in Sunday school this morning, and we hear often, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, that's patient, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the Father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, patience doesn't mean you keep taking something. The fourth characteristic of that of love, or agape love, affection, affectionate regard, or goodwill. God says that he loves you. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. How did God love you? With great love. He loved you and He loved me. If you're God's treasured possession, if you are not God's treasured possession, God's love does not rest on you. God's wrath abides on you. But God in His love and His mercy says, there's a way out of my wrath. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It begins with being humble by having a right estimate of yourself and saying, I have sinned against the Holy God. I am guilty before God. That's the starting point. If you can't get past that, there's no, there's nothing, there's, there's no, there's no hope for somebody who cannot get past that. There literally is no hope. Have you bowed your knee before the Holy God and said, I have I indeed have sinned. And if you have, what was Jesus' response to you? Grovel a little more? No. No. Slaughter the fattened calf. Get the party ready. That which was lost has been found. Love. We are to love one another. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Just by way of clarification, as the world will tell you, love is not love. God (coughs) defines what love is. We are not free to do so. God says He is love. He is the standard of love. And we need to love one another as God loved us. Forgiving one another. Bearing one another's burdens. We'll get into that later in Ephesians and in in future sermons. What are we loving? The fifth character is that of peace. Irene, it means the cessation of hostilities. The whole point of Jesus coming was so that we would be at peace with God and with each other. That's what Paul's been laying out. Jesus came so that we would be at peace with God and with each other. Look again in verses, chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for He, that is Jesus Himself, is our peace. And He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we have both access in one spirit to the father Jesus in Isaiah is called what the prince of fighting and arguing no We wouldn't win a fight or arguments against Jesus anyways. He wins every time. Now he's called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Are we at peace with one another? Even greater question is, are you at peace with God today? Are you at peace with God today? Oh yeah, I said a prayer when I was X amount of years old. Or just, no, are you at peace with God? Are we daily coming to God, confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness, 
being restored because of God's unlimited mercy and grace for us. As God's treasured possession, we're to seek to grow in these characteristics. We should be eager to for the sake of the church. What it says in verse 3, that you would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The word eager is spudazo. It means to be eager to do something with the implication of readiness to expend energy and effort. How many of you, like me, have been excited to do something and you start out but you just fizzle out? Yeah, I have, this is way more than I thought it was going to be. I can't, I can't go through with it, right? I remember when we bought our first house in New York, and we had a very, very long driveway. You know, one car with, but it was very long, and it was on a hill like this. And, and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to shovel my driveway. Well, I tell you, the first snow, I got about a quarter away. I threw that shovel away. I went to Home Depot and I bought a snowblower. I was eager. <laughs> But the snowblower was much nicer. I was more eager to do it with a snowblower than I was a shovel. I can tell you that much. But you know how we start things, get excited about something, and just fizzle out. We need to be eager to maintain, to reto, to cause a state to continue. Eager to maintain what? Unity. He notes oneness. Not that we're all the same. That we're all going to be here wearing the same uniform and just standing, you know, and just like drones. That's not what it means. We're all individuals, but members of the same church. Nobody's asking to take away your individuality. That's what makes the church so great. There's so many differences of us, right? We want to be eager to maintain it because this unity is from the Holy Spirit. And God is not a confusion. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God not of disorder, but of order. Look at what it says. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit. When we are at odds with one another, we are not walking in humility and patience and kindness and all those characteristics. The unity of the Spirit is broken. It just can't be there. So when we see the first sign of trouble, when relationships are tense, instead of self-justifying ourselves, which I do, which I wish I didn't as much, pray for me, our first thought should go to, you know what? We're out of whack with Christ right now. That's the priority. That's where the disconnect is. Once we get back to that, then we can work on this. And probably we'll find out that this thing, why were we upset about this anyways? This was such a stupid thing. You like to load the dishwasher this way. I like to load the dishwasher way. Let the other person be wrong. Who cares? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See how practical the Bible is? You can't have unity if there's no peace. You can't have unity if there's no peace. 
doesn't mean we agree on everything. There's differences on theological things among the elders. They're not the salvation issues. We're 100% in unity on that. Other things, where the, where the theological term would be the adiaphora, the gray area, where we really, I can kind of go either way. You, know, you hold that, and, you know, you say tomato and I say tomato. Okay. We can be even at peace in that. We can even be unified. Because it's not an issue that matters. But are we walking in peace? The Bible tells us to seek peace and pursue it. Hebrews would tell us Strive for peace, strive for the holiness and peace without, well, strive for peace and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Why do we want to work within the bond of peace? Because Jesus is our peace. Look again what it says in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And it's by a reminder what he's telling us, that there was an actual physical wall at the temple which divided the Jews and the Gentiles. And if a Gentile went beyond that wall, it was under penalty of death. A, Jewish, a typical Jewish prayer in the morning was, God, I thank you that I'm not born a Gentile or a woman. I mean, there was hostility, hatred, want to kill you kind of hatred. And in Jesus Christ, that's been broken down. How often do we sacrifice peace for the stupidest of things? And I am guilty. I am guilty. You are too. We are to put on love, as Scripture says, Colossians 3, 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Unity and peace, harmony. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, writes this. Strife inevitably results when men and women are out of touch with him who is the one source of true peace. When we personally are out of touch with Jesus Christ, when our relationship with Christ is, you know, we're not in our Bible, we're not praying, and we're not, there's a disconnect. You know, that, that bleeds over to other areas of life. Another reason that we are to seek to grow in these five characteristics and unity is because we have the same identity, same testimony, and the same family. And we'll wrap it up with this. The same identity. What it says in verse 4. There is one body. One spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope. That belongs to your call. We're one body. The church. Many different individuals. But we are one body. One. We have one spirit. The Holy Spirit. And we have one hope. What is our hope? Heaven. We have the same testimony. What it says in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What do you mean we have the same testimony? This was my background and this was your background. Yeah, I get it. We all came to Christ in a different way. But the testimony is, same. It's the same. I was Christless, hopeless, stateless, godless, all those things. 
but I was brought near by the blood of Christ. That's everybody's testimony. Nobody's outside of that. We all have the same testimony. Was there a different path in which God used to bring us together? Absolutely. But it's the same testimony. There's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Which, of course, referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what saves us. And we have the same family. The same family. Same identity. Same family. And one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We are family. And no, we don't got our sisters in me. We got my brothers and sisters in me. Right? I had to do it because somebody was already thinking it. <laughs> but we have the same identity. We're one body. Who are you? I'm a member of the household of God. What's your testimony? I've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who's your family? My church. My brothers and sisters of Christ. No matter where they are in the world, that's my family. The fact is, maybe you've realized this in your own life, that you have greater better, closer, whatever word you want to put on it, relationships and closeness with the God's people than you may your own family. Because we're bound together by the blood of Christ. Jesus is what unifies us through the Holy Spirit. And so if you're God's child, and I pray that you are, work in those five characteristics. Work at becoming let me find it again. Humble, gentle, patient, loving, peaceful. God says those are the characteristics of His church. May it be true of us, especially in a day and an age in which we look at politics, we look at the world. We need to be different. We need to be separate. May we do so for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, forgive us for being prideful. Help us, Lord, to have a right estimation of ourselves. Help us, Lord God, to be patient, to be gentle, to be loving and peaceful, to follow after you, the example of all examples for the sake of the building of your church now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.